0: Join us, and uh, before we go uh, to our time in the Word, uh, I want to pray for us today, so join me please. Father, we are grateful to be here and grateful to be among one another and uh, grateful to be with those that we love and that love us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for hearing us. We thank you for uh, Pastor Brunson, for his uh, release. Thank you. And. <clears throat> Father, we want to pray now for those that are dear to us are lost, members of our family, dear friends, some of these people we have prayed for for years and years and years. And so we plead with you today that in this short time that in your mercy you would reach down and save these that are so dear to us. We cannot stand the thought of being separated from them for eternity. And it's only if you reach down and show them your mercy and grace and redeem them that that won't happen. And so we pray for that today. Uh, We pray for our time now in the word that you'd be honored, that you'd speak uh, through me today, uh, that it would be exactly what you would say were you here with us. We thank you now for this. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, Um, some people have said that we live in a post-truth society. The prevalence of fake news and alternative facts has resulted in a growing number of people that have just thrown their hands up. They don't know what to do. They've been uh, exposed to all this input, and they... It's so difficult to separate truth from fiction, from fact and fabrication. And many people just throw their hands up and say, I, it's, I'm just weary. I'm just tired of it. And, I, I, and I'm just, I'm just going to tune out. And that is a very troubling situation for our nation and the world. But for us as Christians, what's a greater concern is the narratives that are being tossed about uh, trying to masquerade as Scripture from the Bible. And these things, these messages that these narratives send uh, imperil the souls of countless people. And you know, it shouldn't come to a surprise to us that the distortion of the truth or the misstating and misquoting of things is occurring. This is not something new. This has been going on for thousands of years. The first example we have, it of, have of in scriptures in Genesis chapter 3 where Satan has this dialogue with uh, with Eve. And outright, of course, Satan basically accuses God of being a liar. And it's occurred on sins. And and Satan has distorted the word of God uh, at at every opportunity. Satan is a pragmatist. And he does what works. And and he's not afraid to use anything or any means that he thinks will work in advancing his plan. And, of course, his plan is to make sure that the fewest number of people end up in heaven. And he desires the greatest number of people to join him in eternal damnation and hell. And so I want to talk about a few examples that are common in, in our day and age. These are phrases that I think probably would be familiar to most, if not all of us. And they all distort the same truth, but they do it in different ways. And here are some examples. The first one, number one. God helps those that help themselves. That comes out of the book of Galatians, chapter 8, verse 6. The second one is kind of like it. It says, do your best and let the Lord do the rest. That's 2nd Columbians, chapter 14, <laughs> verse 3. And then this one. This one is very familiar to many of us. Maybe we've even spoke it ourselves. And that is this one. God never gives you More than you can handle. And that comes from the book of hallucinations. (laughs) Chapter 4, verse 4. And then the last one that we're going to look at. And you can think of many more. There are many more catchphrases that you've heard that distort the truth of God's word. But here's the last one. For we know that it was by grace that we are saved after all we can do. That sounds good, doesn't it? And that actually is a, a passage out of a legitimate book. Unfortunately, it's not out of God's word, but it's out of Second Nephi chapter 25, verse 23 in the Book of Mormon. So all these all of these phrases kind of sound scriptural, don't they? They have that tone to them, and, and you hear them and you think, yeah, I've heard that before, I just don't know where in the Bible I can find it. They all have something in common. Number one, none of them are in the Bible. Number two, they all all distort the same truth in that they say that every one of these puts its focus where? It puts the focus on us. God helps those that help themselves. Do your best and let the Lord do the rest. For we know... What we know is grace by which we are saved after all we can do. God never gives you more than you can handle. See, the focus is always on us. But the Bible doesn't put the focus on us. The Bible is not about you and me. The Bible is about the Lord. It's about God and His character and ultimately, our need for redemption and His plan for redemption. And how He balanced God's scales of justice on our behalf when the Lord went to Calvary and prayed the penalty of my sin and your sin. It's not about us. It's about Him. So these passages kind of sound like they might be out of the Bible, but how do they really stack up against God's truth? First one... First one that says God helps those that help themselves. You know, that sounds like you know, if we just pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, you know, then God's going to pitch in a little bit, right? But my Bible says this, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And that comes from Romans chapter 5, verse 6. You know, all of these passages... Have another thing in common, and that is they are very arrogant and are full of human pride. And the Bible says this very clearly. It says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And you'll find that in James chapter 4, verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. The second one do your best and let the Lord do the rest. Psalms 28 7 and numerous passages say. Something like this, the Lord is my strength and shield, my heart trusts in him and I am helped. In Proverbs 26 verse 12, do you see a man who is wise in their own eyes? There is more hope for a fool than there is for him. What about the next one? God never gives you more than you can handle. We've heard that. That's a common one. And perhaps I think we've, some of us may have even spoken that. Well, my Bible says in Philippians chapter four thirteen, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me, through the Lord who strengthens me. It's not God never gives me more than I can handle. It's all what the Lord can handle and how He can strengthen me and He can work through that situation. Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 says this. This is Apostle Paul speaking. And the Lord said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, there's only two kinds of people in this world. And that those two groups, the first is one group who's going through a situation right now that's more than they can handle. And the other group is ones that will be shortly. Only two groups of people. Do you think you can handle it? Do you really think that? Do you think you can handle it when... You get word that your parents are dealing with Alzheimer's. And all of a sudden the person that you knew and loved your whole life is no longer that person. And they say and do things that just befuddle you and confuse you and are hurtful. You think you can handle that? You can't handle it. You cannot handle these things. There are all sorts of things that you cannot handle. And those are the times... When we are to draw on the Lord's strength. For I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. It's not that I can handle it. I can't handle it. And you can't either. And then finally this last one. For we know it is by grace that we are saved after all we can do. This passage out of the Book of the Mormon. You know, it sounds so close, doesn't it? It sounds, you know, that's got to be right. You know... The Bible says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. You know, he wants to do the best job of counterfeiting that he can. You know, you know if, if you get handed a $20 bill and it looks like Monopoly money, are you going to take that? Oh. But the one that's done perfectly, you know, that's even in the feel, the texture of the paper, it all looks good. The colors look good. The printing looks so close. But you have to examine it closely to determine that it is indeed a fraud, that it is, you know, this is a fake, this is counterfeit. And that's the way it is with this passage. For we know it's by grace we're saved after all we can do. The Bible says something, sounds a little close to it. But it is leaps and bounds different. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, it says for us, By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that any of us should boast. It's not after all we can do. Titus 3, 5 says, Not as the deeds of righteousness that you've done under the law there, you say, but by His mercy. That's how we are saved. The Lord Himself... Said in John chapter 6, verse 29, when he's asked by the crowd, they said, what must we do to do the works of God? And our Lord responded this way. He says, this, this is what you must do to do the works of God. He says, believe in him who he has sent. In other words, Jesus is saying, you got to believe that I am who I am. I said I am. You have to believe that I'm the Redeemer, I'm the Messiah, I'm God in the flesh because that's what I say I am. You have to believe that. You have to be willing to place your eternal destiny in my hands because I claim to be the Redeemer. I came to be the promised one, the Messiah. These are the works you have to do. You have to believe in me. That's what the Lord says. You know, it's not after all we can do, you know said it once, I've said it a thousand times. If we're going to be in heaven, it won't be because of what we've done. It will be in spite of what we've done. If we're going to be in heaven, it won't be because of what I've done. It's because of what the Lord has done for me. It's not after all we can do. You know, I think, I think so many of us, so many in our society seem to think, you know, hey... Heaven is a reward for living a good life. You know, it's like getting a gold watch after 30 years of faithful service. It doesn't work that way. It can only be received as a gift. We can't earn it and we can't buy it from God. We can't do it. We can't do it. So it's not by grace we've been saved after all we can do at all. So. These passages all have the same, and, same kind of tone, same message and commonness that we're in control. We're at the center of things. God only fills in with when necessary. Like, you know, it's kind of like, well, we did all the heavy lifting. And now, you know, the Lord will kind of put a little frosting on the cake or something like that. These passages all say, you know, that we're the masters of our, of our own fate. We can set the course of lives, and it shows an extreme arrogance of the heart. The Lord said in Luke chapter 18, He says, He who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So what does the Bible say? Um, If you're looking at the Pew Bible, you'll find this on page 901, I believe, and it's out of the Gospel of John chapter 15, and it's verses 4 and 5. The Bible says this. It says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. Many of us are familiar with this familiar passage of Scripture. This word abide is used a number of times just in the couple verses that, uh, that I read to us just now. But if you look at all of John 15, uh, that word abide is probably used a dozen times. So what does that word mean? What does that word abide mean? That's an important word to our passage. It's kind of first cousins to another word that we might be more for w- familiar with, and that's abode. You know, that kind of is a place you live. That's kind of a a dwelling. So abide kind of means this. It kind of, a dictionary definition is to remain or to dwell in. But for the purposes of our passage here, I want to use a definition that comes out of the Christoph Collegiate Dictionary, revised 2018. And that definition for abide is this, is to be at home in. To be at home in. And so Jesus says, if if you're at home in me and I in you, he says that the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it's at home in the vine it's connected. So neither can you unless you are at home in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who is at home in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing nothing you know jesus has just said in john chapter 14 verse 20 says in that day that's the day the lord returns he says you will know that i am in the father and you in me and i in you and this is you know that's a it's easy for me to say it's not as easy for me to try to explain it because it's hard for me to understand it too but what he's talking about is When we come to faith in in the Lord and we place our eternal destiny in His hands, when we acknowledge our sin and acknowledge our need for a Savior and He rescues and redeems us, we're joined together in this new supernatural organism, best way I can describe it. And we're all interrelated and interconnected. You know, we're talked about at times as living stones and we're all being kind of fit together into one grand new organism of which the Lord is a part of. And the Father's a part of it and the Holy Spirit dwells in it too. And we're all connected that way. And so this business of to be at home in is kind of appropriate because, you know, the Lord talks about our relationship, when we come to the faith of the Lord, we're, what, adopted into his family? He talks about that. He We refer to the Lord as our father, right? We, we do that quite regularly. And we refer to each other, at least from time to time, as brother or sister. It implies this, you know, relationship that would be common in a family. And so... What does a properly functioning family look like? One thing I think is absolutely essential for a proper functioning family is good communication. You know, we're we're in tune with one another. You know, it's not, you know, I think at times in our families, you know, we have this, we have this relationship kind of. We're still our family, but it's like two ships passing in the night. We don't know what each other is doing. I and mean, that's, not, that's not a family that functions as good as it should. Right? That communication is important, that connectedness, you know, so that we can bear another's burdens, that we can help one another out, that we can understand one another, we can laugh with one another, cry with one another. That's a, that's a properly functioning family. We're connected. We're at home with each other. You know, Jesus says this. He says, when that relationship is that way, when we're connected, we're at home in each other, you know, the lines of communication are good. He says, what happens? He says, we bear much fruit. So what's that fruit look like? Number one, the first thing is, it ought to start setting a pattern of behavior in our life, and that is one of obedience. And, you know, if I'm connected to the Lord and He's at home in me, I should have a feel for what He desires that I do. You know, unfortunately, none of us here kind of really measure up all that great with that, do we? Because we want to take part of that back for our own, and we say, you know, I'm going to do what I want to do. You know, and and we all do that, don't we? But the trajectory of our life ought to be that, you know, where I am in my walk of obedience today ought to be a little better than it was five years ago. You should ask people that know me well, and, and they should be able to say, yeah, it's looking a little better. It's far from perfect, but it's looking a little better. That's the trajectory. We won't reach perfection in this lo- in this life. That's not going to happen. But that should be the trajectory of our life. And woe is me if the people that know me well don't say that. They say, oh. Bill, I'm sorry, but I got to tell you the truth. It's not looking good. You know, you've kind of slip, <laughs> slip back the other way. It's not good. I'm not connected. The Lord's not at home in me, and I'm not at Him. The relationship is too distant. It's more the ships passing in the night. Well, this fruit also is defined for us in Galatians chapter five, verse twenty-two. This fruit of the Spirit. Apostle Paul talks about. Being love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And so all of these virtues should be present in each and every one of us that is a believer to some degree. And it's all going to be different. You know the things that I'm doing pretty good at might not be so might not be so good for you the things that you're great i might not i might lead a lot of work you know fruit matures differently at different rates with different individuals you know and it takes time for that fruit to mature you know if you live in fallon and you might have a fruit tree an apple tree or a peach tree or something like that in your backyard first of all good luck getting any fruit right because what happens typically, it, you know, it's, they start to green up, and here come the buds and the blossoms, and then we get a nice frost, and it just burns them all off, and you're kind of out of luck for another year, you know. But if you manage to run the gauntlet that way, you know, what happens in March? You know, you start to see some green and then some buds. Start, do you expect to pick an apple off that tree in May? No way. You know, it's going to be later in the year. It takes time. It takes time. You know, it's different. Different fruit it takes different time to mature on different individuals in different places. If if you're in the deep South, in Georgia and Alabama and Mississippi, you harvest corn. Well, it is harvest the combines start there in July, and if you're in North Dakota, they're going to finish up combining the corn in November. It takes time, and, you know, barley matures in, in late June and early July and in Fallon, Nevada, but the corn's going to be later. You know, so it takes time, and my fruit's going to look different than your fruit. You know, some of us excel at some things and really lacking in others. You know, you might do well at loving other people, at that virtue. You might do well at that, but you might lack self-control. You might not do such a good job managing your checkbook and your credit card balance. And it might be the other way around. Maybe you manage your credit card balance and your and your checkbook pretty well, but you're lacking in love. You see that. That's what those two kind of go together. And so the rest of these things, but all of us should have a degree of joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. All that should be should be. Typical of us to some degree if the Lord's at home in us and we're at home in him. Well, what does this passage say that we can do if we're not at home in the Lord? If we're two sh- ships passing in the night, that the that the connectedness is not there, the communication is not good. It says this, he says, for apart from me you can do all but the really hard things. Most of the things, but you're going to be lacking a few. You can fill most of them in and I'll come and put the ferocity on the cake. So you can do nothing. Nothing. That's what you can expect. You shouldn't expect any more than that. Many of us have done things in our own way, in our own power. And the Lord has just been gracious to us. That's all I can say. And, and we've had some measure of success doing things our own way. But that's only because of His just grace. You know, as parents, sometimes we do things for our kids, you know, that you know, maybe we shouldn't have done that. And I'm not trying to second-guess the Lord. I shouldn't do that. He's the best parent ever. But I have to say, and sometimes I wonder what he's thinking. I wonder what he's thinking. But we shouldn't expect to accomplish anything more than zero when we're doing it our own way. Here's what things look like when we try to do it our own way. When we get ahead of ourselves and we think, hey, I got this. After all, the Lord never gives us anything more than we can handle in the at, at Homestead, we've been going through the the Book of Genesis, and one of the you know the the featured people, heroes of the faith in Genesis is Abraham. Or early in his life, it's Abram, and so he's a giant, and he's he's enshrined in Hebrews chapter eleven in the Hall of Faith, so to speak. He's a giant, and we all look to him as that, and. To a certain degree, that's I understand it, and that's the way it ought to be. But as we look at the book of Genesis, we also see someone... Let's put it this way. The Bible for me is a whole lot easier to believe because I see the characters in it, the people in it, even the heroes in it, look a whole lot like me. And that sense, I'm not bragging. I'm just telling you the truth that... Even the heroes in the Bible had brief periods of faithfulness followed by longer periods of failure. And Abram, exactly that way. You know, the story starts out good. This starts in Genesis 12, but you don't need to go there. But I would encourage you to read through this this week. It'll, it, it'll be, I think you'll benefit from it. In Genesis 12, the, the story kind of starts and And Abram and his family is in Haran. And so the Lord appears to him and he says, Abram, pack up. I want you to leave. I want you to go to a land I will show you. Now, Abram is not familiar with this land at all. He, at best, perhaps he had talked to some people that had traveled there at some point in time. But, you know, the Internet connection is down. He can't get on Google Earth and go there and check it out. He can't do that. And so he's going to go to a place he's never been before. It's 600 miles plus or minus away from where he is. He realizes that whoever he leaves behind, friends, business, business associates, uh, other people, you know, maybe distant relatives in his family, he leaves these people, and he's likely never to see them again. He's gone. If he leaves, he's gone. But you know what? Abram does it. He goes on foot. So Abram and his, his whole entourage heads over to the promised land, heads to Canaan. And he's got Lot, his nephew, with him, and, and other servants and livestock, the whole works. They go on foot 600 miles to Canaan. And he gets there, and he's not there long, and there's a shortage of food. The there's, there's, Bible says there was famine in the land. Most likely it was caused, but there's not enough moisture. And so now there's a problem. Abram believed God in, in, this, in this amazing way. Would you and I have just left everything we knew, knew and walked 600 feet, 600 miles on foot to go to a place? I don't think I'd done that. Abram did. He's a giant of the faith, right? But then he gets to, gets to Canaan and there's this problem. They don't have enough to eat. So, what does Abram do? Does Abram say, go to the Lord and say, Lord, you gotta help us out here. We're not gonna have enough food to make it through the winter. We're short. You know, there's gonna be, there's gonna be some starvation going on here. You gotta help us out. Does he do that? Oh no. Abram's got a plan. He's a man with a plan. And so Abram says, I know what let's do. Let's go down to Egypt. I hear they've got plenty of food down there, and let's just go down there. And so here they go, and they start trekking down to Egypt. Well, when he's not quite there, there's a reality check that's going on. And he somehow figures he's forgot about this one little detail. And so he's talking to his wife, Sarai. And he says to her, he says, I know that you're a beautiful woman. When we get to Egypt, they're going to see that and they're going to kill me and let you live because of the beauty. He says, what I want you to do is tell them that you're my sister. Then everything will go well with me. And so, you know, the the chivalry of Abram just, you know, just gets it, you know. He's willing to put his wife Purity in jeopardy to save his own skin. How admirable, right? And so they get to Egypt and Sarai does it. She tells him that, that Abram's her brother and so on. And the Egyptians really treat him good. They give them all sorts of stuff, all sorts of livestock and male and female servants. And, and so, you know, at first it kind of looks like this is a pretty good idea. Well, then reality sets in, and all of a sudden, all sorts of bad things start happening to the Egyptians. And they're thinking, What's going on here? And they figure it out. And they figure out that they've been lied to, that Sarai is Abram's wife, not sister. And they say, Get out of here. Take everything you have and get out of here. They escorted him out of the country. They say goodbye and good riddance. And so Abraham, Abram still at this point, is trekking back to Canaan, right? And so they get there. Okay, now it's Sarai's turn. She doesn't want to be outdone by Abram's foolishness. So she has a plan. And so the Lord had promised Abram that he would be the father of many nations, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. But they have no kids. And so Sarai has a brilliant idea. She says, hey, why don't you take the maid that we got down in Egypt, Hagar, why don't you take her and have physical relations with her and then we can have some kids? Now, what does Abram say? Does he say, honey, that is a terrible idea. We can't do that. That's wrong. We should not do that. Oh, no. He thinks it's a great idea, too. So, sure enough, he has relations with Hagar. And lo and behold, they have a son. And that son is named Ishmael. And the Bible tells us that Ishmael will be a wild donkey of a man And everyone's hand will be against him, and his hand will be against everyone else. In other words, Ishmael's not going to get along well with people. He's not a people person, okay? And so, how does that affect us? We're paying for that rise to this day. Because Ishmael is the father of the Arab people. The Arab people, as a whole, have trouble getting along with others. They have trouble getting along with themselves. It's been that way, and it's likely to be that way for a while, and they got that from Ishmael. Now, go back. If Abram had not gone down to Egypt, they would not have gotten Hagar. You know, Egyptians sent a Trojan horse, if you will, back with them in the form of Hagar. And it's a mess. And we see a lot of Genesis, you know, dealing with this mess that was... All this was put in motion by Abram having this great idea. I'm going to do things my way. I got it figured out. I got it handled. After all, the Lord would never give me more than I can handle, right? And so you see all this playing out. Later on, you see there's this division of Lot and Abram. Why did that happen? That happened because they got so much stuff in Egypt, and they bring it back with them. And you know what happens if you have a lot of stuff? You have trouble getting along with people that other people that have a lot of stuff. And so they separate. And so then Lot goes down to Sodom. And then you have this whole debacle of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. Lot's two daughters have an incestuous relationship with him. I mean, it's a mess. All that was put in place... Because Abram had a better idea. He's going to do it his way, his own way. Jesus says, "For apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, you can do something. But a lot of times you're not going to like the results. And that certainly didn't, you know. And and here's the thing. You know, a thousand years later... The prophet Isaiah would talk about this, and it's a, he's not talking about a situation with Abram, but he's talking about one that it certainly could be. Listen to this. This is Isaiah chapter 30, verses 1 and 2. It says, Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan, but not mine. Sound familiar? And make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. Who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me. Still sounding familiar? To take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh. And to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Where it says, whoa. You know, it's into this thing. Add sin to sin. You know, when something starts out with a lie. It's probably not going to get better. It generally leads to something worse. And we see it. We've seen that in our own lives and we've seen it played out countless of times in front of us to add sin to sin. So how does this affect us? How does it affect, first of all, how do these things, how do we how do we view these things? We need to view these all these things that we hear, we need to be, we need to be lining them up with scripture. Does this really say, you know? Does it really say this? Does the Bible really say this, or is this a, a good counterfeit? What about our salvation? This business, for we know, is grace by we that we are saved after all we can do. See, the common thought in our society, and for our, probably throughout the ages, has been that the key to unlock heaven's door is, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it, right? All roads lead to Chicago. And many of us think that, you know, hey, it's like, you know, it's like fixing my car. And I got, I got a bolt I got to tighten. And you know what? I know what I'll do. Tighten that bolt. I'm going to go get me a Crescent wrench, and I'm going to tighten that bolt up, and that will fix that car, And another person says, hey, I have I have bloodied my knuckles more times than I can tell you by using a crescent wrench. I'm going to do something smart. I'm going to use a pair of vice grips on that nut, and I am going to tighten that, and it'll be fixed. And the third guy comes along, and he says, you know, you're both wrong. I'm going to use a socket and a ratchet. I got this figured out. And people think that an entrance to heaven is just like that. We just got to tighten the right bolt. And you know what? Your way of tightening it is as good as my way. There are many ways to get to the same, many paths to the same destination type thing. But you know what? You know, you can do it your way. You can do it. Many people think they can do it their way. A number of years ago, several years ago, a friend of mine and I went to visit with a man who was dying from bone cancer. And this man... You know, we're talking to him and we're trying to encourage him and so on and so forth. And, you know, we got in the subject of religion and stuff. And this man said something that I will never forget. And it sent chills down my spine. And he says, as far as religion is concerned, he says, just like my dad, I have my own way. I have my own way. What did Jesus say? Jesus says, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to heaven except by me. You know, you can have your own way, and it'll get you somewhere, but the only way, only place your own way is going to get you is to hell. It will not get you to heaven. It doesn't go that way. It's not on that path. What about for our daily lives? Forgetting from morning till night. From point A to point B, shouldn't we have this connectedness? Doesn't that work better? Shouldn't we benefit from the fruit of the Spirit by having the Lord be at home in us and us in Him? What marriage would not benefit from a little more love, joy, peace, and patience and kindness? what one of us who has a business wouldn't benefit from some patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control you know we got control of the checkbook and we got control of the credit card and we're going to be kind and gentle to those because those people that work for us and those those suppliers we deal with and our customers that we sell to they can be difficult These things, like they say, business would be great if it weren't for the people, right? And So what one of us can't benefit from that, that we're more united? What about our relationships outside of marriage with our friends and the better people that we care about? What one of us cannot benefit from this? So how does that work? The Bible gives us a prescription to do that. And it's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And it says, you know, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in all things give thanks, for this is, Christ, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so we should, first of all, be people of joy when we take into consideration everything the Lord has done for us, where we are today. How do you think, did any of us actually cause this? Did you cause yourself to be born in the United States of America and enjoy the blessings of this great country? Were you responsible for that? The Bible tells us we have nothing except that which has been given to us. So we should be joyful people. We should be be grateful that way. And the Bible says we should be praying without ceasing. Praying is communication. That's what happens when a family is functioning well. You're talking. You're communicating with one another. And... Prayer is an act of humility in and of itself. And it's saying, I can't do it on my own. I can't handle this. And I need help. And the Lord promises, he says, you know, I'm going to give grace to the humble, but I'm going to resist the proud. And he who humbles himself shall be exalted. He exalts himself be humbled. And prayer is an act of humility when we seek the Lord on an ongoing basis. It isn't that you just check this off once. It has to be, it should be ongoing. Talk to your family on a regular basis, don't you? It isn't, it isn't a once here and once there. It needs to be ongoing. And we should be thankful. We should be grateful. Grateful for how the Lord has answered our prayers. We look at Pastor Brunson. A lot of people have been praying for him. And a lot of people thought, I don't know if we'll ever see him again. The Lord was gracious, and Pastor Brunson is safe now. And we have a lot of other people in harm's way, and we need to continue to pray for them. And so, as we close, you know, what is our relationship? This is not fake news that we need to be united to the Lord, that He should be at home in us and us in Him. That is something that you can take to the bank. It's there. It's in Scripture. So, you know, can we do it our way? No. We can't do it our way. I'm sorry. I told you the only place that doing it our way can take us. You know, we've all been, we've all been to a funeral service or a memorial service that has played a song that's sung by Frank Sinatra. And I'm not digging him because he didn't know what he was doing. I'm giving them the benefit of the doubt. and the name of that song you've all heard it is, "I did it my way." And I cringe when I hear this song. <sighs> this is so counter to everything the Bible stands for. And the final verse, I'll just read the final verse of this song. It says, "For what is man, what has he got? If not himself, then he has a not. To say the things he truly feels and not the words. Of one who kneels. The record shows I took the blows and did it my way. As if there's some virtue in saying everything that's on your mind. There's some virtue to that. You know, not everything that can be said should be said. You know, it says we don't want the words of one who kneels. That one who knows he needs help. He can't do it on his own. It's too much for him. Doing it our way can take us to hell, but it can never take us to heaven. And we need the Lord's help throughout the day. Now, to close, I'll tell you a little story. I can talk about these things because I'm worse than most of you, probably, about this. You know, a couple months ago, we had a fence to take down, a wooden fence. And I'm thinking, no problem. I'm good at taking stuff apart, Right? Demo, you know, me and Chip Gaines, we can do this, right? And so my wife and I, we're taking a little bonding time here, so we're going to go take this fence down. So the first part of it goes we taking the panels down. That actually goes pretty good. Then we go to try to take the posts out. And it's a disaster. One thing after another. I can't imagine I mean, how can you screw something up so bad? I don't know. We finally got close to noon and we weren't done yet. We should have been done. It should have, the whole thing should have taken 45 minutes probably and we're a couple hours in and we're not done. So we go home and I finally, I turned to my wife and I said, maybe we should have prayed. It didn't go well. You know, how often, how often do we think it's easier to ask for forgiveness than permission? How often do we think we need to pray? after we've gotten ourselves in a jam than praying before. How often does that happen? So, be vigilant about what you put in your mind and what you believe. Line it up against Scripture and see if that's what it really says. And finally, you've got to be connected. You've got to be connected. Is the Lord at home in you? Or is he kind of the ship passing in the night? You know, for all of us, you know, I think we have to say there have been too many times that's been the case, been the case with me. It shouldn't be that way. You know, we need to have the Lord at home in us. So Tim's going to come up and lead us in a final song, and then he's going to close us in prayer. So.